your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Good afternoon, and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an Internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community, an international nonprofit organization dedicated to providing support, education, and hope to people with cancer and their loved ones. Our services are offered at over 100 locations worldwide and online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. Before we begin today's topic, let's move to a segment we call Cancer in the News, which highlights the latest cancer headlines. I'm Bill Schaefer, and this is today's Cancer in the News. Researchers recently announced that obese women may have a higher risk of developing ovarian cancer than their thinner counterparts. Ovarian cancer is a particularly deadly type of cancer because in the initial stages, it typically has vague symptoms or none at all, making it difficult to catch early. In the new study, which included more than 94,000 United States women with the ages between 50 and 71 who were followed for more than seven years, the researchers found that obese women were more likely to develop ovarian cancer. But the risk appeared to be confined to those who had never used hormone replacement therapy, or HRT, during menopause. Previous studies have linked hormone use to a reduced risk of ovarian cancer. Among women who had never used HRT, those who were obese had an 83% higher risk of ovarian cancer than normal weight women did. The findings, reported in the journal Cancer, suggested that obesity may be one of a few controllable risk factors for ovarian cancer. Although it's not entirely clear why obesity may contribute to ovarian cancer, researchers say it may have to do with the effects of excess body fat on a woman's estrogen levels. The fact that the risk varied according to the women's HRT use supports this theory. In other news, results from another recent study revealed that only a minority of patients with advanced cancer are referred by their cancer doctor for specialized psychological care, even if they are clearly distressed. Among a group of 326 patients being treated in a comprehensive cancer center for advanced lung cancer or gastrointestinal cancer, only one-third were referred for psychosocial care to a social worker, psychologist, or psychiatrist. In addition, more than half of those with clinically significant levels of depression were not referred for psychosocial care of any kind throughout the course of their disease. These findings are of concern to experts because they demonstrate that the majority of cancer patients with advanced disease and clinically significant levels of depression may not be referred for psychosocial care despite mounting evidence for its benefit. Researchers said that patients who were unmarried and living alone were more likely to be referred, which may be a result of their potentially greater social need and distress. However, amongst those with elevated levels of distress, there was a remarkable age difference in referral rates with all the patients younger than 40 years of age referred for psychosocial care compared with only 22% of those aged 70 or older. The significant difference in referral rates between younger and older patients raises the possibility of age bias in the referral for psychosocial care. 
These findings draw attention to the need for routine screening for distress in cancer patients, for the institution of more routine mechanisms that integrate psychosocial care in cancer treatment settings, and for further research to elucidate the potential barriers to psychosocial care in the older cancer patients. I'm Bill Schaefer, and that's today's Cancer in the News. By now, most of us have become used to the hundreds of television ads shown every day promoting new drugs that treat everything from arthritis to depression to asthma, dry eyes. Uh, There seems to be a drug available to treat everything. But the reality is it's a very long road between the laboratory and the marketplace, and there are still many ailments and illnesses that remain with limited or no treatment options. On today's show, we're going to discuss the drug approval process and review the role uh, of the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, so we can gain a better understanding of why one in only about 10,000 compounds actually makes it to the marketplace. We'll also compare the U.S. drug approval process with other countries and really take a hard look at whether our system is providing the highest quality care to Americans. Uh, We're joined by two great guests today who bring important perspectives to our show. First, we have Dr. Ken Miller. Ken is an assistant professor of medicine at Yale School of Medicine in the section of medical oncology. He is also director of the Connecticut Challenge Survivorship Clinic and the supportive care program at Yale Cancer Center. Ken is the host of Yale Cancer Center uh, Center Answers, a weekly talk show on WNPR, Connecticut Public Radio, that covers myths, facts, and advances in cancer diagnosis and treatment with a different focus each week. Ken, it sounds like you're trying to compete with our show <laughs> here, frankly speaking about cancer. <laughs> I gotta say, I think yours is great, and it's and and I've and I encourage you to to to, to move ahead because you're doing a great job. Well, I appreciate you being with us today. We are also joined by Dr. Garrow Arman, who is the Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of Antigenics, a biotechnology company he co-founded in 1994. Garrow is also the founder and president of the Children of Armenia Fund, a charitable organization established in 2000 that is dedicated to the positive development of the youth of Armenia. Thanks for being here today, Garrow. Thank you very much, Kim. So it's wonderful to have both of you with us today. I know our listeners are really eager to hear this discussion, so let's jump right in. Uh, I'm going to start with you, Ken. Uh, complicated subject, but let's start with some basic information um, on really on the drug development process. In, in the simplest ter- terms that you can, how does a drug make it from the lab to the marketplace? Can you give us a brief overview of that process? Well, the uh, the, the process in the lab takes takes a very very long time. Um, and so let's talk about that briefly. Essentially, many co- many compounds are are developed um, by biochemists and organic chemists in, in the laboratory, and then often they'll make uh, up to hundreds of uh, of drugs that look very similar to it, <clears throat> and those can be tested in in the lab uh, on cells that are on cancer cells. And it's a screening process, and and thankfully that pr- that has it's very complicated and yet has been sped up uh, some by, by automation and new techniques. And so through that screening, you get a, you get a, a sense um, of which drugs may have activity. Um, and we're fortunate because a lot of the, uh, the computer technology we have has allowed uh, these scientists to be able to almost make a model to look at what the cancer cell, for example, needs in metabolism and then figure out what drugs uh, would look like that would actually inhibit those uh, proteins and enzymes in those cells. Mm-hmm. So it's really a, uh, uh, they use a lot of cognitive power, their brain power, yeah. and, and then they also use really good techniques to, to figure out and, uh, and test 
uh, and pick, pick the, the possible winners. Now, Ken, I'm, I'm, I'm finding some statistics, uh, one I mentioned in the opening of our show, that, that one in 10,000 compounds actually makes it to market. I'm, oh. I'm finding some stats that say that there's a minimum of a half a billion dollar investment to get a drug to market. That can t- it can take up to 10 years for this process. Are those statistics accurate? Are those ranges correct? I mean, I've, um, I, I think the up to 10 years is correct probably from the very minute that the compound is, is thought of uh, in someone's mind or in someone's, <clears throat> on someone's computer to the time that it actually um, reaches approval and, and, and distribution. Um, there are some, you know, and we can talk about it later, but some ways that the process can be sped up if there's incredibly promising results. Um, and, and the drug companies, just like you're saying, do test many, many, many compounds. Now, of the 10,000, not all of them get into clinical trials where they're tested in people. Mm-hmm. So there's a big drop-off from the number that's first uh, thought about or conceived to the number that actually make it to clinical trials. But then you're right, the number that, that go from clinical trials to really distribution because they're accepted and approved is, is also a, that's a big drop-off in the numbers as well. Okay, I'm going to pull Garrow into the conversation here, but I want to get back to one thing, Ken, when we get a minute, is I do want to talk for a minute about clinical trials because I want our audience to really understand what clinical trials are. But, Garrow, I know you know a thing or two <laughs> uh, about drug development. Um, tell us a little bit about antigenics and the drug you created, Oncophage. What does it treat? Who is it for? Tell us a little bit about that. Certainly. Uh, we founded the company, as you said, Kim, in 1994, and since then, we have been uh, pursuing our lead program, which is Oncophage. Uh, that's the drug that you referred to. Mm-hmm. And Oncophage belongs to a new generation of drugs. It's a cancer vaccine. It's mm-hmm. a When most people think about vaccines, they think of prevention. But in the context of Oncophage and therapeutic cancer vaccines, we're talking about treating sick people, people who have already uh, been stricken by cancer. And uh, in, in the context of um, uh, vaccines, um, oncophage is really a drug. Um, perhaps uh, it's not accurate to call it a drug, but it is an agent that trains the body, teaches the body mm-hmm. how to fight off cancer. So in that regard, it is appropriate for cancers, uh, better for slightly earlier stage cancers than than. Uh, so-called stage 4 metastatic disease. Mm -hmm. And because it's an individualized product, it is made for every single patient, and I will explain the reason why that is, it is is potentially applicable for all cancers. In fact, we have tested oncophage in eight different types of cancers, from colon cancer to brain tumors, and uh, with very, very encouraging results. So... um, uh, getting back to why should we do this individually, one of the challenges of cancer, as you know, since President Nixon declared war on cancer, uh, we've made progress, but that progress has not been profound. In yes. solid tumors, we haven't really found a so-called cure yet. Uh, and part of the reason is because cancer is an individualized disease. It is really unique from person to person. And so that's the challenge that we face, and that's why uh, we have targeted a drug that is made individually, tailor-made for each and every patient. 
So we're going to take a break in just a minute or two, Gara, but tell, tell us more about that. What, I mean, do you literally mean that this drug is made specifically for me, Kim Tibaldo, if I have cancer? It's made from something from my body to help. To tell us more about that individualized process because I think people are going to be fascinated to hear about that. And it is. Yes, exactly. It is made, tailor-made for individuals. Uh, what we do is we collect the cancer tumor from surgery. Most cancer patients undergo surgery. We take the tumor. We ship it to our facility in Lexington, Massachusetts, and we've done this from all over the world. Uh, we've treated close to a 1,000 patients this way from as far away as Australia and Russia and Japan and so on. And when it's shipped to our facility, in approximately 12 hours, we extract certain proteins from every patient's tumor. Now, it so happens that these proteins are not personalized. They're common proteins. But what's interesting is that these proteins are simply carrier molecules, and what they carry is really the individualized fingerprint that identifies person's cancer to that person's immune system. So, so by doing this, we generate a customized immune response, which is critical to be able to target the cancer appropriately. Okay. All right. We're talking uh, today, folks, about the, the uh, drug development process, uh, the drug approval process. It's a fascinating conversation, so don't go away. We're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back. Your life, your health, your network. Voice America Health & Wellness. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle coworkers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. For more than 25 years, the wellness community has been the nation's leader in providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or or at one of our 26 centers in the U.S. and abroad, the wellness community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-WELL or visit us online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. The Wellness Community, celebrating over 25 years of cancer support, education, and hope. It attacks the brain, and you might not know what hit you. It's a stroke, and it can cripple or kill you. If suddenly you're numb or weak on one side, limb, or face. It could be a stroke. Get help. There's no time to waste. It could even be a sudden, severe headache without cause. If you wait to get help, time lost is brain lost. Maybe it's a loved one slurring their speech or dizzy. Call 911 and get medical help quickly. There are even more symptoms that I did not mention. So call or hit the web for information and prevention. Blacks have a higher occurrence. Do you want to know more? Call 1-888-4-STROKE or visit www.strokeassociation.org. High blood pressure, diabetes, and obesity. All make the risk of a stroke more likely. But remember, if it happens, do not delay. Or disability might be the price you pay. 
a public service message brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Tebaldo, and today we're joined by Dr. Ken Miller, Assistant Professor of Medicine at Yale School of Medicine, and Dr. Garrow Arman, Chairman and CEO of Antigenics, a biotech company. Uh, we've been talking about the drug approval process, and we've just learned a little bit about Antigenics' new drug, Oncophage, which is actually a, a cancer vaccine. Garrow, I want to get back into that discussion um, for a minute because, again, this is a, this is a really new idea for people, this idea of a treatment vaccine, a vaccine that you're giving to people with cancer. As you said, we're used to vaccines being something that we get to prevent disease. We get vaccines when we're kids. We get them when we're traveling abroad. So tell us a little bit more, Garrow, about this idea of a a treatment vaccine in cancer, and are we going to be seeing more of this type of treatment in the future? You know, uh, Kim, um, I think you touched on some very interesting points because um, 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 we. My conviction uh, is certainly we will see more of this because the body, the human body, does a wonderful job most of the time to be able to both prevent disease as well as to treat uh, when a person is already sick. It is in those cases that it fails to do it. Uh, The question is, can we help it do the job better? Can we strengthen the body somehow or teach it how to heal itself? I mean, it almost sounds like um, a, um, a, a, a holistic approach, but the truth of the matter is that the body itself heals most of the time. And so uh, it is my conviction, and it is certainly the conviction of our company and many scientists, a growing number of scientists and clinicians now, that we can perhaps teach the body to do the job better in instances where it's either forgotten or hasn't really been able to do it properly. So we're really we're going to see more of this in the future, really harnessing the, the, the power of the body to fight disease, and now we're seeing it move into, this, into the cancer space. That's correct. So, Garrow, I want to touch on, and I think we could probably talk for about three hours <laughs> today, but there's so much I want to cover. But I want to talk quickly about, um, I, I know that in 2008 you received approval for Oncophage in Russia. Um, tell, us, tell us why you went to Russia for approval. You're a U.S.-based company. Why did you go to Russia for approval, and what was that process like? Several reasons, actually, because um, um, we did a international trial. Uh, We actually conducted the largest trial in adjuvant renal cell carcinoma. And what that means simply is that in kidney cancer patients who had not yet been visibly metastatic, uh, meaning uh, in whom the disease hadn't yet spread uh, to other organs, um, we took a group of these patients around the world and did a very large trial, which included Russia, Europe, Poland, the U.S., Canada, and so on. Mm -hmm. 
And remarkably, we enrolled about 25% of our patients from Russia. And for many years, there had been concern that Russian clinical trial practices perhaps were not optimal. But in our trial experience, and we audited our trial twice in Russia by sending people from the U.S., we discovered that Russian clinical practices not, were not only uh, not as good as uh, the U.S. or Europe, but they were even better. Mm. And so we were surprised. And uh, we were surprised, and this was a reality check for us. So from that point on, we started paying attention to Russia. And when the results were uh, available to us uh, from the trial, uh, we went all over, all over the world, including Russia, and we were very struck by both the experience and uh, as well as the desire of the Russian physicians to have access to oncophage for their patients. And because the Russian regulatory system was relatively new uh, um, since the collapse of the Soviet Union, it did incorporate a number of good things in it, including um, paying a lot more attention to perhaps science as well as other clinical considerations. And uh, the Russian authorities uh, saw it appropriate that our product would be approved based on the data that was available. Now, Europe has um, adopted a similar stance, and as uh, you may have remarked before, we filed in Europe for approval, and we're now uh, working with the European authorities uh, towards a potential approval of our product. So do you think because of the newness of this process in Russia that there are that the process is more nimble, that the process is more advanced, that they're open to looking at data from trials in a way that perhaps we're not open to? Are we a little more dug in in the U.S., in your opinion, Garrow? I think, I mean, um, you know, when Ken described uh, drug discovery and development uh, earlier, he alluded to uh, screening a great number of compounds, and, you know, that's how our regulatory system uh, uh, really uh, structured itself to be able to uh, um, uh, screen and evaluate compounds uh, which were screened in an automated fashion or in a blinded fashion. Uh, so uh, our system uh, perhaps uh, was developed here in this country uh, to accommodate earlier uh, generation of drugs um, that were less targeted. Uh, uh, we understood less about their mechanism of action or the biological rationale and so on. And uh, uh, now, in the last uh, five, six, seven years, there has been literally a scientific revolution in our understanding of the biology and perhaps having a more targeted approach to drug development. Uh, so uh, we need uh, to accommodate this change, and that this change involves uh, some level of uh, thought uh, to be given to um, uh, things other than just statistical uh, analysis. Uh, certainly statistical analysis is very important, but it needs to be combined with other considerations as well. Now, complicating all of this, complicating all of this, particularly in cancer, our develop drug development approval uh, process is primarily targeted for uh, compounds in uh, that are used in late stage disease. By late stage, I mean, as you know, cancer comes in uh, stage one, two, three, and four. Four being the uh, uh, sickest patients, and uh, remarkably. Uh, about 90% of the drugs that are used today in cancer 
uh, were first developed and registered uh, for stage 4 disease. Mm -hmm. And uh, as you know, Kim, um, we always believe that earlier intervention is better. Sure. Uh, and yet, we have not practiced this in the in the, uh, the drug development uh, field for certainly for cancer drugs. In the process, Ken, let me let me bring you into the conversation here. Do you, in your uh, observation, do you think that the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, which is the agency that reviews drugs in the U.S., do you think that the FDA is keeping pace? With the technological advances that Garrow is talking about, is the is that is that drug review and approval process in the U.S. working well? Is it working for us as Americans? Well, so I mean, I present a, a, a perhaps a slightly different view. I, mean, I think in in many many ways it is because the the responsibility of the FDA is is not just to find uh, uh, good drugs and approve them, but also. To, uh, uh, to to look for safety as well. So there, there's two things again: it's safety and effectiveness as well. And you know, many 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 compounds and drugs come to the FDA and approaches the treatment, um, and they approve many and they turn down many as well. So for example, if a drug turns if it turns out there's safety issues. There can be a motivation on the part of the people who are making the drug to say, "Well, they're minor," and the FDA might say, "Well, wait a minute, they're not." So I, um, I, I and and um, the point that was made earlier in terms of that they're geared toward drug development, I think, is somewhat true. Safety issues tend to be greater when you're using a chemotherapy drug. The biologic approaches, such as in this case, for example, uh, not all biologic approaches, but making a vaccine, I think there's many. There's a significant possibility that that is a safer. Those are safer and may have less um, talk, uh, less side effects. Um, but but there's still the responsibility of the FDA to say is it um, is it good? Is it better than what we have? Um, because we also don't want to see people not getting an effective treatment um, and instead getting something that that may not work as well. So now, so I, now Ken, let me ask you this. So as we um, as, as we move forward in uh, in cancer treatment, and as we move more into targeted therapies, biological therapies, gene therapies, aren't we going to find, as we do this research, that certain patients are going to respond to some treatments and certain patients are not? And we're, we're certainly not going to know that until we kind of get into these clinical trials and start to test some of these agents. Well, you know, actually, it's a great question. So I'm going to give an example. There is a drug called uh, Tarceva. Tarceva is a pill uh, that's given to people with a certain type of lung cancer. Now, it turns out that um, among uh, women who are of Asian uh, descent, who are non-smokers, the response rate is very high. It's up over 40%, perhaps higher than that. If you take an, a population, a larger population of, of people with lung cancer, let's say a thousand people who are not of Asian descent and not women or just just all comers with lung cancer, the response rate is much lower. I mean, it's probably in the ten percent range or or, or le around that number. So, so there, in a sense, it was a good observation on the part of the. Um, uh, of of the investigators and and so in a sense yes you're right if you have to test a large population of people uh, to determine how many are responders and then uh, you can then after that you can start looking and it's called what's called an unplanned 
analysis. It means you didn't plan on it, but after you got the results, you were smart. You looked at them carefully, and then you might pick a group that, that really do well. And, and obviously, we're always looking for that. Who are the people where it's a home run? Uh, a drug like Gleevec, which is used for a certain form of leukemia, is a home run. It's a wonderful drug, found because of good science and good, and, and a good, and good clinical studies. So, Kim, we're going to take a break in just a minute, but, but so based on what you're saying, is, so if, if, if what I'm finding in my studies is different from what I originally thought I was going to find, does the FDA let me kind of change my plan and say, look, I want to get this drug approved for Asian women who are non-smokers, when originally we were looking at a much broader group of patients with lung cancer? Can I go back to the FDA and kind of change my plan? Will they be open to that conversation? Well, I think, you know, I, I mean, for the most part, uh, they're, they're going to say to you, um, uh, no. I mean, or often they'll say, no, you need to go back. I mean, unless the results are so striking, uh, you need to go back and, and really look at that population and confirm it. Um, and and there's a reason for doing it. On one hand, it sounds sort of like it's mean or, it's, uh, or they're slowing things down. But uh, statistics are a, are a very um, precise science. And if you plan on a certain way of looking at your information, you, basically what you've done is to, is to try to eliminate the chance that, th- that uh, these were random findings, that, that you just happen to, you know, um, uh, do a group of patients did well who uh, you know almost by chance who let's could, say could what, be a coincidence a coincidence thank you and um, so and when you do these analysis afterwards it's a little less convincing to 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 the people at the FDA so there's pros and cons you know whether that's good or bad but I think um, that is an approach they've taken which which I think tries to safeguard our uh, our, our patients yeah. Yeah. Now, um, we're, ju- we're uh, heading towards our break in just a minute, but, um, Garrow, you had some experience with the FDA, is that correct, where with yes. the Food and Drug Administration in the U.S., where, um, th- where the FDA essentially did not want to look at some of the... Um, uh, we're going to the break now? Okay. We, we, um, I'm told we're going to uh, go to the break in just a minute. Uh, this is Frankly Speaking About Cancer, and we've got two great guests with us today. We're talking about the drug review uh, and approval process in the U.S. We are going to take a quick break, and we will be right back. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health & Wellness. Hello. Hi, Bill. Uh, this is George Dewey from up the street. Oh, hey, George. How you doing? Good, good. Say, I noticed you've been walking to work these days instead of driving, mm. and I uh, don't quite know how to say this, but... But... But what? But... But... Your butt. Your buttocks. Your butt. I think I found your butt on my front lawn. Have you recently lost it? As a matter of fact, I have, George. It's about time someone noticed. Well, it was kind of hard to miss, if you know what I mean. Anyways, would you like it back? Would I like it back? No, not really. So it's okay if I throw it out? Sure, that's fine. Take it easy, George. Small step number eight. Walk instead of driving whenever you can. It's just one of the many small steps you can take to help you become a healthier, well, you. Get started at www.smallstep.gov and take a small step to get healthy. 
A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle coworkers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. For more than 25 years, the wellness community has been the nation's leader in providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at one of our 26 centers in the U.S. and abroad, the wellness community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-WELL or visit us online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. The Wellness Community, celebrating over 25 years of cancer support, education, and hope. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your host, Kim Tibaldo. We all know someone who's been affected by cancer, whether they are newly diagnosed or being faced with a recurrence. And while there are numerous ways to treat cancer, how can you be sure that you're receiving the best treatment options that are available to you? Can we rely on the FDA to approve necessary drugs? Are we gambling um, on an approval process that might be uh, outdated? We're discussing these really compelling issues today with uh, Dr. Garrow Arman, Chairman and CEO of Antigenics, and Dr. Ken Miller, Assistant Professor of Medicine at Yale School of Medicine. Garrow, in our last segment, we were talking about the FDA, about the approval process uh, here in the U.S. Um, we know that uh, you took your drug Oncophage for approval to Russia uh, and have subsequently filed for approval uh, in the European Union. Tell us a little bit about, again, why you, uh, why you went to Russia, what your experience was with the uh, FDA here, and why you now subsequently have gone to file uh, in Europe so we can kind of understand that process. Uh, certainly, uh, I think you know. Uh, I agree with Ken that the FDA has the best of intentions, obviously, but uh, they are uh, uh, constrained by the conventional uh, uh, rules uh, that dictate drug approval in the U.S. And uh, I, I think in our case, uh, the drug approval process doesn't accommodate a an agent like ours. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, like Oncophage. And the reason for it is uh, complicated, but uh, suffice it to say that the development of Oncophage uh, was a seven to nine year phase three development uh, undertaking. Mm. And phase three development, as you know, is a randomized trial where you test uh, Oncophage against what the standard is. And in our case, there was no standard. It was only surgery plus uh, patient was observed until the disease came back. So it wasn't comparing one treatment against another treatment as we're used to. That's correct. Okay. So it was as clean a trial as one could get. However, uh, 
Because we tested this drug in earlier stage patients than what I alluded to earlier, uh, which are the target of 90% of cancer drugs that are being used today, late-stage patients, the development uh, process is uh, much, much longer. Uh, so typical phase three trials in uh, cancer drugs uh, may be uh, one to two year um, uh, in length. In our case, uh, we're talking about seven to nine years. So it's unreasonable uh, for anyone uh, to do a long trial and determine in this trial that there is a externally defined patient population. In our case, when we started the trial, uh, the, uh, we grouped all the patients into one bucket uh, only because in the year 2000, it wasn't known to the medical community that indeed the patients in this one bucket belonged to two separate buckets. Uh, this information came about six years later, mm-hmm. and when we analyzed the trial with regard to these uh, separation of patient populations, uh, we discovered that indeed the earlier stage patients benefited from oncophage profoundly. We so how did, how did they benefit, Gero? Tell me profoundly. Okay, so this, the, the, um, the state of the art in uh, measuring benefit mm-hmm. is uh, two things uh, here. Uh, recurrence of disease, that means does the cancer come back, mm-hmm. uh, and overall survival. Mm-hmm. Uh, does cancer coming back also uh, uh, correlate with survival of these patients? And I, I must tell you that in both of these measures, uh, our drug has shown uh, substantial activity. And so when we discussed these elements, the clinical rationale, the biological rationale, and the mechanism of the drug uh, with Russian authorities and European authorities, um, there were mechanisms in place in both of these uh, areas uh, to allow for approval of a drug. Now, in Europe, uh, we, they have something called conditional approval provision, uh, which is a mechanism to accommodate these types of situations. But unfortunately, in the U.S., we do not have such a mechanism just yet, and that's one of the reasons we've had limited interactions with the FDA, simply because there's really no way uh, the, the agency could make an allowance today uh, for a situation like ours where you have clear benefit in an externally defined population. Ninety percent of the world's experts that we have uh, presented this data to uh, agree with it and are excited about these results, but unfortunately uh, the regulatory mechanism in the U.S. Uh, is constrained and, and does not allow for this uh, to be approved. So that just doesn't exist ridiculous. right now. That mechanism does not exist. Yeah. Now, so so tell me, are you... So it's approved now in Russia. You filed in Europe. Are you finding patients going from Europe to Russia to try to yep. get this drug? Are you finding patients? Uh, do you find patients in the U.S. who have said, "I want to get this drug"? Do I have to go to Russia to get it? How do I do that? Are you are you starting to hear that at all, Carol? That's a very interesting uh, question, and uh, let me answer it this way. When uh, the approval of our drug was discussed on uh, a major news show in the U.S., uh, that very same news show conducted a poll uh, at the end of the day, and the poll simply said uh, to Americans, uh, if uh, you were stricken with this disease, would you wait for the FDA to approve the drug, or would you travel to Russia to seek treatment there? 
And uh, interestingly, 91% of the responders said they would travel to Russia. Hmm. Now, also, also, many physicians that are uh, familiar with uh, oncophage in kidney cancer, both in Europe and in the U.S., have said uh, publicly that uh, they would uh, recommend patients or send some of their patients uh, to Russia uh, to seek treatment until this drug was available in their own country. Mm. Wow. I, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating dilemma, isn't it? It is, uh-huh. and it is, it is a challenge, uh, and I think this challenge is uh, certainly posed by rapidly changing knowledge, and, uh, and unfortunately, um, in any uh, uh, bureaucracy, government agency, uh, there's always a gap between uh, the pace at which knowledge uh, advances and the pace of regulation that could accommodate this change in knowledge. Yeah. So, so hopefully, um, I think we have some very smart people in the U.S., uh, both in the government and in the uh, uh, clinical field, uh, and my hope is that uh, we will move very quickly uh, to make these changes happen. Advances. So, so Ken, I, I want you to, A, feel free to comment on this, you know, again, I think what is a really fascinating story with Garrow and antigenics. And B, I just want to back up when we get a minute, I want to just back up and have you tell folks again just kind of what clinical trials are and the different phases of clinical trials because that's an important part of the process on how we bring a drug, you know, to the marketplace. And I think that we certainly need to encourage more people to look at clinical trials. Uh, you know, if we're really going to make some advances, I think we, we need to encourage more folks to look at clinical trials in the treatment setting. Sure. So let me, let me talk about that, and then, and then I'll share a personal story, as it, and I think it relates to this. Um, there are, uh, clinical trials are very important, and this, that's, that's, it serve, they serve many purposes, but there's really two. The, the first is um, hopefully bringing drugs, uh, new drugs and new developments to people with cancer uh, that will help them. And the second uh, is is learning uh, more about uh, how to fight cancer uh, from the from the scientists and physicians' point of view, so that we can continue to do a better job. So we we always the goal, our, at least my goal as a clinician, is always to help people. And the second is to learn as much as possible to help other people in the future. Yeah. All right, there's basically uh, three or actually we could even say four phases of clinical trials. Um, Kim, do you want me to go through them? Yeah, we're gonna. We've got um, just a couple minutes until our break, but do, I do can because I I'll think it's important brief. that folks get this education. This yep. is such phase a one. Uh, uh, drugs that are just being tested in people for the very first time. Uh, the drugs are given first at a very low dose, and then the dose is uh, slowly uh, increased as more patients are being treated to look for side effects. So we're really primarily looking at finding the proper dose and and identifying the side effects and, and finding out how much of a dose we can give with drugs that seem to be promising. Yeah. Phase two is looking at those same drugs that, that once we've defined the dose that's the best uh, and, the, and the highest dose that's safe is looking at uh, does it work in, certain, in specific diseases. So it might be 50 patients with breast cancer or lung cancer, colon cancer, et cetera. Phase three is once if you found a drug in phase two that where you've identified the dose and you've found some promise that Jesus looks good, 
you'll test it in people that have um, uh, that have that illness, and then compare it to the best treatment that's that's known at that time. So that's called a phase three trial. And finally, phase four would be called post marketing. So the drug has already come out, and then you you, you know the FDA and the drug companies hopefully continue to monitor it uh, to look for new side effects and and also to confirm the the benefit of the drug. That's a so, and, um, and if you want, I can share a personal story after the break. Yes, after the break, I would love for you. Uh, I would love for you to do that, and also love it, you know, as someone in the medical profession to share any comments and observations about again Garrow's story, antigenic story, um, because I, uh, you know, obviously it caught my attention, and I think it's uh, it's an intriguing uh, story, and I wanted to get it out there to folks. I wanted them to know about it. Um, we're here on Frankly Speaking about Cancer. We're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. Holistic health and well-being covers many facets, including stress, time management, weight loss, cardiovascular training, and aging. And that's just to name a few. Your life without limits will help to sort it all out for you. Join host Joe Sardi and the top minds in holistic health and well-being for an educational and entertaining hour. Listen for Your Life Without Limits. Heard every Wednesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Network. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. For more than 25 years, the wellness community has been the nation's leader in providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or or at one of our 26 centers in the U.S. and abroad, the wellness community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-WELL or visit us online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. The Wellness Community, celebrating over 25 years of cancer support, education, and hope. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. On today's show, we've been talking about the U.S. drug approval process, comparing it to other countries like Russia, uh, who have approved antigenic cancer uh, treatment vaccine, Oncophage. 
Um, Ken, I appreciate that great summary of clinical trials that you gave us before the break because, again, I think it's important for folks to really understand this process of how how drugs make it to market and how important uh, clinical trials are in terms of advancing cancer research. And I know you had a story that you wanted to share with us, so I want to jump back in with you on that. All right. So, you know, I'll share a story which is, uh, I mean, has a happy ending. Uh, It has to do with my wife. Uh, Joan had leukemia about nine years ago. And, uh, you know, at the, at the time, she really wasn't doing well, and I really looked into where, was there, a, well, there was a new drug, a special antibody that had been approved by the FDA, uh, and I really wanted, or was about to be approved, I take it back, and I, and I really wanted to get it. I called my senator and congressman and the drug companies, and I could not get it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I have to say, and then we, she needed chemotherapy, and, and thankfully it's, you know, is a cancer survivor and doing well. Um, but I have to say, nine years later, we sort of, sort of know now that drug is not a super drug. And so it turned out, okay, the drug was approved, but it's turned out in, in phase four as we really sort of looked at it, that drug over years. It really is not a home-run drug as we all had hoped for. Yeah. So. It's a it's a story about a drug that was approved that wasn't a home run, and, and I have to say, on the other hand, thankfully, a, a, a happy ending. So, on the other hand, there are drugs, um, you know, like we're talking about today with, with oncophage, which may, may in fact turn out to, to to be you know a fantastic drug, and I re, I really hope it is. Um, they've looked at it in people that have had kidney cancer, trying to prevent recurrence, and that's a great uh, setting. To, to look at that, uh, to try to prevent a cancer from coming back. So I hope the approach, as more studies are done, I hope the approach works uh, because we, it's much better to prevent a recurrence than, than to treat someone that has active disease. Yeah. Garrow, am I right that oncophage was the first treatment vaccine that was approved in the world? Yes. Uh, it is the first vaccine that has been approved um, and um, uh, we are aware of a number of other programs in cancer vaccine development uh, that I think will come to the market over the next several years. And so this is an exciting field, an exciting field to watch for because, as Ken alluded to before, um, safety side effects are an important consideration in uh, treatment of patients with cancer drugs, particularly chemotherapy drugs. And uh, I believe that uh, cancer vaccines, as Ken said earlier, are a particularly safe uh, class of compounds. And, and I think we can make a profound impact on the quality of life of patients, uh, coupled with if we successfully prevent recurrence of disease, uh, de facto these patients are cured. And so uh, that is, we'll cross, we'll, we'll cross our fingers, and that is the hope. Now, now tell me, Garen, what other cancers are you studying oncophage right now? Interestingly, um, uh, well, we have uh, tested oncophage in eight different types of cancers. However, uh, almost daily we get requests from physicians and patients uh, for oncophage in their disease, which hasn't been the subject of one of our studies. Uh, for example, recently uh, we had a very high-profile patient from Italy uh, who is the wife of one of the uh, uh, ministers of Italy, um, who rec- whose physician uh, became familiar with oncophage and how it works in one of our meetings that was held in Europe and requested oncophage, and we had to go through all kinds of hoops, obviously, in the U.S. Uh, from a regulatory perspective as well as in Italy, 
uh, to make product under compassionate use for this patient, and uh, we did. Uh, and the patient has been uh, treated now uh, almost a year, and the outcomes so far have been fantastic. So, so uh, there is a request to expand beyond the clinical trials that, or beyond the cancers that we have already targeted, such as glioma, gastric cancer, colon cancer, melanoma, renal cancer, pancreatic cancer, and so on. Uh, and also, very importantly, uh, recently uh, uh, we have an agreement with um, um, to study oncophage in pediatric uh, brain tumors uh, uh, to be paid by a consortium uh, uh, for uh, a pediatric uh, cancer uh, glioma patients. Now you said that the, you said that it's a very customized to the individual, and that you that you make the compound in. Massachusetts. Do you only make it in Massachusetts? Will you start to make it in Russia, in Europe? Will you open labs there? I think eventually we will, but for now we have an absolutely state-of-the-art facility in uh, Lexington, Massachusetts that is um, um, equipped to make this product under the strictest guidelines mm-hmm. that conform with uh, GMP as well as quality standards because, as you can imagine, Kim, when you have a um, uh, customized product, it isn't as simple as a, an off-the-shelf product that you make in batches. And so we have to make sure that we go through extensive testing, uh, quality testing for each and every patient's product. And so um, uh, while we would certainly replicate this elsewhere in the world as demand for oncophage uh, increases, uh, but for now, we feel uh, particularly comforted by the fact that we have been practicing this art in Lexington for over five years, and uh, the best place to do it in the world right now is Lexington, Massachusetts. Gara, when do you um, hope to hear from the European authorities about your application there? Um, since we submitted uh, our application in October, um, there has been a continuous uh, dialogue with the European authorities, and that dialogue continues. So. We go through the review process now, um, and uh, we're actively going through the review process. Um, and uh, our hope is that uh, there will be a decision made uh, by the end of this year. Great. Well, we wish you luck with that. Um, we are coming towards the end of our show, but can can you just tell us quickly? Are we, in terms of the future of cancer treatment, are is this what we're looking at? Are we looking at targeted therapies? Are we looking at biological therapies and and, and harnessing the power of our own biologies to to fight these diseases? Uh, you know, there's a lot of targeted therapies. Some are targeted at specific uh, genes or specific uh, enzymes in cancer cells. Some will be target will be immune uh, therapies that are targeted in terms of uh, specific patients' tumors. So, and 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 it's it is a very exciting time to um, uh, because there's a lot of advances and I think a lot of promise. Um, on the you know it's um, uh, I was thinking I mean it is an exciting time. It's never you know obviously it's uh, for people diagnosed with cancer um, as so many of us have been through in our lives. Um, you know it's. It's a it's a devastating time as well, but but there's reason you know uh, uh, hope is a, is a powerful tool as well, and there's really a lot of hope that that people will, will continue to find will, that we will continue to find some cures. Yeah, well, I, you you obviously can have been touched by this disease in a very unique way <laughs> yeah. through your wife's own experience, and so not so uh, not only through 
your professional work there at Yale, but also through your own hmm. family's experience. I'm sure you probably see this in a different light, don't you? Absolutely. It's uh, you know when when uh, it's being on the other side of the stethoscope or, or wa- wa- walking in our patient's shoes or my patient's shoes, and and you know you you do learn a lot from that experience. And I just want to comment also just a small thing. I mean, the wellness community um, has been a wonderful resource for many many people, and and, and including for my family. Um, so uh, and and that provides a lot of hope too. Well, I'm happy to hear you say that, Ken. And I, I um, you know, we want folks to know that again, it's uh, it's that combination of not only these wonderful treatments, but also that social and emotional support that is critical for patients and for uh, and for families. Um, you guys have been both been wonderful uh, today, and I'm really grateful for the time that you've taken to be with us um, to listen to Ken Miller's show, uh, Yale Cancer Center Answers. Go to www.yalecancercenter.org/answers, and you can uh, download his podcasts and and hear his wonderful show. Um, If you would like more information on new discoveries in cancer, the wellness community offers a free educational book called Frankly Speaking About New Discoveries in Cancer, which discusses the most current innovations in cancer treatment. Also, for managing side effects, we have a booklet called Frankly Speaking About Cancer Treatment, Take Control of Side Effects with Medicine, Mind, and Body. Uh, You can visit our website at www.thewellnesscommunity.org or call 888-793-WELL. Uh, we dedicate uh, every one of our shows to someone, and we'd actually like to dedicate the show um, today to um, Patrick Swayze. He's been battling pancreatic cancer. They've been in the news. Uh, he and his family have been in the news lately. They've been coping um, with quite a bit since his uh, diagnosis of pancreatic cancer, so our thoughts and prayers uh, go out to them. I want to thank all of you for joining us today on Frankly Speaking About Cancer, and until next time, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org.